Hi, and welcome back to the Leading Language and Literature podcast with me, Chris Jordan. In this episode, I'm talking to Donald Hale. Donald is an English head of department at a secondary school in York and respected voice in English teaching on Twitter and beyond. In this episode, we discuss the best book he's ever read, taught or learned whilst at school, where Donald and his department stand on planning the curriculum according to concepts, texts and or skills, how formative feedback, summatives and marking works in Donald's department and if there is anything they're looking to change, the one area of the job he'd like to improve, what reading and or writing initiatives Donald has within the department to ensure that students are getting rigorous practice in these areas, whether Donald has allowed for any provision in the curriculum for teaching how to speak publicly, and lastly, aside from Twitter, what's the best resource he's come across for English teaching that might help others. Thanks again to Donald for crossing the time zone divide and offering a frank and fantastic lowdown on how he sees English instruction in its many forms. If you want to be kept up to date on when educational chat like this happens, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast and or follow me on Twitter at ChrisJordanHK. Okay, Donald, um, can we start by just, uh, well, me asking you, what is the best book you've ever read, taught or learned whilst at school yourself? So it's sort of broken down into two books, I'm afraid, for this answer. I'm not just going to give one. In terms of what I read whilst in school, which will never appear in any kind of curriculum or specification at any point in the future, was I Know This Much Is True by Wally Lamb. And it's a slightly obscure kind of American novel that when I kind of say in Twitter lists that it's the novel that changed me the most and the thing that I love the most, people don't seem to have really heard of it. But it's essentially about um, a pair of twins, one of whom the brother has paranoid schizophrenia. And it's not told from his point of view. It's actually told from his twin brother's point of view. And it's about how he kind of deals with that in terms of identity within a family dynamic and it's an absolute beast of a novel it's 800 pages that's very much just the kind of premise of it but I've never read a book whereby it's kind of infected me in like my bones I think about it I reckon once a week every week since I've read it it just kind of keeps coming back to me just the characterization of the protagonist and just the concept of kind of because uh, Dominic, the protagonist, he has this paranoid schizophrenic brother, Thomas, obviously all the attention's drawn upon his twin brother. And it's about how he copes with that and about where he forms an identity outside of his brother, but also how he's his brother's care and has to look after him. And it's just, it's just brutal. Um, it's so mm-hmm. brutal and tragic and just poetically written in every way. And it's just one of those things where I make it my mission really to say to everyone who's not read it that they have to read it it's one of those books not like a you know a oh, hundred books before you die type book necessarily but just people that i know you need to read this book it just will affect you in a way that you couldn't imagine i suppose and i think kind of reading that when younger and school kind of an a-level Obviously, I was already into literature and I loved the subject and the discipline, but it just kind of opened my eyes to kind of the world beyond like Dickens and Shakespeare and the kind of, you know, quintessential kind of British sensibility, I suppose. And it just destroyed me, but in a really good way. It just made me really reflect. And I've read it since nine or 10 times. And even though I know it's going to happen and I won't spoil anything because I do want everyone to read it, obviously. Hmm. But it breaks down into tears. I break down into tears every every single time. It's just it's it's heart wrenching. So I think as a novel, in terms of that emotional response, I mean, that's something that I think is so important. Um, as I said, I I don't get to teach that, nor will I ever get to teach that, just because of its length. I think it would never appear in any spec. But in terms of what I was both taught, I suppose in sixth form, and then I now teach. I was teaching today, in fact, actually, uh, King Lear by William Shakespeare. I think is an absolute masterpiece, not just of Shakespeare, but of any form of drama. And 
It's one of those ones where it's the kind of lesser taught text in the AQA spec. Loads of teachers choose Othello over King Lear. And I seem to be in the minority voice saying that King Lear, it's hard to compare. And I don't want to say it's better than Othello, but I'm going to. I think it's better than Othello. <laughs> I just think it's just sensational um, in terms of Shakespeare's kind of portrayal of not just kind of, you know, the reversal of kingly status and the kind of challenge to absolutism and monarchy and things like that and the political angle, just in terms of how it deals with an old man in the throes of senility descending into madness and how his family either support him or don't support him in, in his behaviour. I think for me, I first came across that not uh, that play when my my grandmother was in the kind of pits of dementia, which is just a horrible, horrible, horrible disease. And I kind of just recognized a lot at the time, kind of what Lear was going through as that, what we would call in the modern day context of a demented mind, obviously not kind of appreciated by Shakespeare in 1606. And just thinking back to her and even though everyone else in the class was very much just like, oh, well, Lear brings it upon himself and I don't feel any pity for Lear, sort of forgetting the fact it's a tragedy and you're meant to feel pity for the tragic protagonist. But I was just like, I, I, I just feel for him. And I, and I get that he can behave a bit poorly at times. And I get that, you know, he's, he's not the kindest towards his daughters and he sees kind of betrayal that's not always there and things like that. But just in terms of the humanity of, you know, an old man at the kind of end of his life or near the end of his life at the beginning of the play, obviously not making sensible decisions, making rash, impulsive decisions through senility. I just thought, like, he is the most humane of the Shakespeare characters that I've ever encountered. And I think when I teach Shakespeare, I always really struggle about it to compare any other text to Lear because just that kind of comment in the human condition, and that's what my English teacher of the time would always say, this play is about the division of the kingdom. Yes, it's about the kind of, you know, potential instability with James I, the Scottish king on the throne of the Jacobean era and all that stuff. But he said at its heart, it's about how humans treat other humans. And that always really stuck with me. And I think when I teach that, if I was talking about that today, we were looking at the storm scene in Lear, kind of, you know, where the storm is howling around Lear and he's ripping and tearing his clothes and talking about, you know, being beasted in the animals in that moment. And just the idea of the kind of, you know, humanity being stripped away is just, I think, universal. I think people talk about Shakespeare as this kind of universal writer. And I think sometimes he is, but sometimes he isn't. And I think that when he deals with humanity is the universal theme that gives kind of credence to us, you know, teaching that text to young people today. You know, not everyone loves Shakespeare at age 16, 17, 18, but I think the more you kind of learn texts like that and the older you get as well. Like, I mean, I'm 33 now and I, you know, I've probably read King Lear every year since 18. In fact, mm-hmm. since 16, it's been a long time for me. And every time I read it, I come across something new that just kind of makes me really kind of reflect, not in like a, you know, massively depressing way, but just looking at kind of, you know, our existence and how the world works and, I don't think I've ever encountered a text that I've taught before that does that in the same way. So if you don't teach Lear at a level, do it if you can. It's a <laughs> fellow's great, but I think Lear's better. That's a hell of an answer, hell of a sell for both <laughs> those texts. I wondered how you were going to top the first one, but that's a, yeah, an incredibly impassioned um, um, reason to go for Lear. I do always feel like Lear's one of those plays uh twelfth night is similar in the sense that it's just it's all and this is the least academic way of describing it but <laughs> it's just it's all killer no filler there's just yeah. no there's nothing where like i i enjoy all of the i've, I've enjoyed every shakespeare text i've ever taught but yeah othello is almost it's carried by yeah iago and obviously like othello is like a incredibly tragic figure and Desdemona but outside of that it's there's there's there are other talking points but I think I feel like students go away with those three and Mads and Macbeth it's a bit of a you know Macbeth and Lady Macbeth kind of two 
um two horse thing but like the, the leah it, it's so much more than leah it's you know the the daughters there's there's edmund there's you know the bastard um stuff with it as well so um yeah yeah completely concur with you on that one um moving on to just uh, maybe talking about uh curriculum in your school um donald we there's been obviously lots of chat on twitter and things like that in the last few feels like a long time maybe it's only been the last 12 months but with regard to curriculum how do things work at your place in terms of um is it is it planned by concept is it anchored in text is it anchored in skills or is it a combination of each yeah it's an interesting one here for us so i mean we're very much like everyone is in a transition of curriculum planning and it's always that kind of adage isn't it that you know, the curriculum's never done. You don't get to mm-hmm. like completion mode by any stretch of the imagination. I think kind of several years ago, if I'm being really blunt and honest, I'd say that the curriculum was kind of devised by what texts teachers mm-hmm. thought was interesting. And then it was kind of taught. But certainly over the last two, three years, we've been really trying to promote kind of a concept-led curriculum um, that's very kind of knowledge-rich in nature. So what we do, for example, for year seven, eight, nine, is that we've got a set of um, concepts, which we look at almost not even as literary concepts, but almost kind of wider abstract concepts like masculinity and honor Mm. and hierarchy. What I think are really kind of almost threshold concepts to help you understand the works of literature. And we map our curriculum alongside those. So for example, in year seven, we begin the year, or we're going to begin the year next year at least, by looking at heroism in the Odyssey. And we look at notions of masculinity alongside that. And then move into term two, where we look at Macbeth, and we look at Macbeth through the same concepts. So we look at how the kind of notions of heroism has changed over time. We kind of do that chronologically. And then we go to Gothic literature by the end of the year and see kind of from a more 19th century perspective, whether those issues have changed. And I suppose we try to promote this idea that, you know, there are certain concepts or tropes that appear in literature all the time and mm. texts will deal with them differently by the nature of the writer, but also in terms of the kind of context of reception. So, you know, when we're talking about the Odyssey and what it means to be the hero and that kind of trope, which obviously has resonance across much of literature, we then kind of look at how that develops over time. And I think, that's what kind of makes our sequencing quite interesting and allows the students to make links across. So, you know, we're able to kind of by the end of the year, for example, do an end of year exam whereby we can talk about, you know, how, you know, someone like Odysseus can be considered a hero and how Macbeth can, but actually mm-hmm. they're considered heroes in different ways. And looking at mm-hmm. those kind of contrasts and juxtaposition as well, we really kind of reinforce and we kind of do that through seven, eight, nine. So in, in year eight, we look at the same concepts again, like heroism, masculinity. We also look at ambition and morality, actually, in year seven. And then we use the same concepts with different texts, and then we add some more. So the idea is as they progress, they reinforce the old concepts and then add some new ones based on the text that we do. And that's kind of our kind of approach that we're trialing at the minute. Mm. We are trying to really, I mean... I suppose the phrase knowledge rich, I know I've used that there. It's sort of a a phrase that does get bandied around quite a lot as well. And often with kind of eyes rolling, scathing tone, which I totally get because I think it's become a bit guilty of kind of lethal mutation. Kind of, I think everyone Mm. claims they've got a knowledge rich curriculum and I don't think everyone does, or at least maybe not in the way I perceive it. But we are kind of kind of unapologetic really about that. For each unit, there are certain aspects of knowledge that students need to acquire in that unit that they'll be assessed on throughout the unit, but also we come back to in our end of year exams. So, for example, when we're looking at, you know, Macbeth, we look at the kind of idea of um, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth as well, particularly being a dissembler. And we use that term and we want students to know that term, being Mm. a dissembler or dissembling. And we expect and we check for students to use that specific term in their writing. And we're not trying to kind of close off kind of, you know, personal response and interpretations of the text, but we know as a kind of piece of powerful knowledge, knowing what a dissembler is and then be able to apply that to other literary texts they may encounter in future is really important. 
So we kind of really make that specific in our schemes of work and schemes of learning and ensure the students are taught and then regularly kind of assessed on their knowledge of whether they know that. So I suppose our concepts then feed into that kind of knowledge that we want them to acquire. So if we're looking at kind of, you know, masculinity, there are certain phrases that we want them to know. We want them to know what toxic masculinity means, both mm-hmm. in a kind of contemporary context for critical readings, but also just kind of for wider purpose. So I think that's kind of our our approach. And it's kind of been a radical change, really. You know, as I said, it used to be, let's do the boy in the striped pajamas in year seven, because <laughs> they like it. And I yeah. really hate that text. I mean, our history department rightly have told us off in the past for teaching it. I completely agree. It's, you know, a horrible representation of how concentration camps actually work. And I remember thinking when I kind of joined four years ago, when I was asking questions around curriculum, why do we teach it? The answer I was getting most frequently was either, oh, it's a good text to teach. We've got it. Or the kids like it. Mm. And I just, I, I can't deal with that as a rationale, you know, and this was almost kind of prior to, to be honest, the Ofsted focus on curriculum. I know that's kind of forced the issue a little bit, but even prior to that, I've never worked in schools whereby the justification of a text is because I like it or the kids like it. It needs to have kind of literary value. And I think that's what we're trying to shape at the minute with our concepts. And like people will do concept-led curriculums in a different way, but that's very much our approach. But you know, we're still on a journey with that. I don't think we're quite there. Yeah, I think mm. it's kind of a, a two, three-year project from this point to kind of get it really secure. And then we'll probably look back on it and we'll make changes. But that's the fun thing about being a head of department. That's probably the fun thing, I suppose, in a way. Yeah. You know, no one enjoys doing the admin. No one enjoys doing, well, they might do. I'm not a massive fan of, you know, people management as such. I mean, I, I manage people because I have to, but curriculum's the joy for me. So, Kind yeah. of, I've set up something that I want to kind of build on and tweak and change, but yeah, we'll see how it goes. But that that's our approach to it. And look, there's different approaches, but it's what we justify as our kind of sequencing and our links. And it seems to be going really well so far. So let's hope it continues. Which um, which uh, copy of that's so funny you say that. Like I'm looking at uh, doing the Odyssey for year seven next year potentially. Which what copy of it have you thought about using, Donald? Have you thought about like an abridged version or like, I know there's obviously thousands of kind of um, translations. Which one have you thought about doing? So we're kind of a bit torn in terms of what to do with it because we've gone around the houses in this. We've kind of gone from do we try to get kind of a kind of more academic translation that you might yeah. encounter more at university level, but do it extract based, or mm. do we do it where it's almost like a novelization of it as well? There's there's a really good translation um, by Emily Wilson that we're looking at at the minute, which is kind of more that kind of novelization approach, and it's certainly more kind of student friendly as yeah. well, but. I think it's sort of my job at the minute to kind of decide exactly which one it's going to be um, for that because there's there's so many out there. And I know loads of schools do the Odyssey almost kind of as a kind of maybe legend and myths unit or, you know, mythology yeah. unit, and they might look at extracts from it. I think we're quite keen to do it as a text in its own right, but obviously ambitiously looking at that with year seven as they join us for the first time. We have to think quite carefully. So we are kind of looking potentially at that Wilson translation as a starting point. But yeah, it's still a a to be confirmed for me really at this point. But I think it is going to be kind of a a version of the text that maintains the story. It needs to be rich in language. Still, that's the key. Obviously, we, we, we can't introduce ancient Greek to them. That's not going to go down so well. But we want to have something that's rich in language. I mean, we... We kind of this year currently, and we don't know whether we're going to keep it with our new sequencing, do um, a Michael Murpurgo version of Beowulf that works quite uh, well in terms of looking at ancient texts, but through a modern translation. But we chose that text because it has the richest of language to analyze and it works as text in its own right. And I want to make sure we achieve that same goal with the Odyssey, really. So we'll mm, see what happens. Mm, that's interesting. Um, 
In terms of another kind of big question, I suppose, with regards to the department, how does formative feedback, summatives, marking work, that kind of thing work in your department? I was I was reading something, I've forgotten the name of that book now by Michael Childs, uh, The Feedback Pendulum, that's it. Yeah. That's um, it. And I was thinking, you know, about like how to, it's a bit of a golden goose, isn't it? This idea of like, how do you get rid of all the marking from English if possible and still retain student you know improvement and, and that kind of thing so how how what kind of discussions are you having in your department and what does marking look like when you guys do it yeah i mean that's sort of our hot button topic at the minute um we've just completely revamped how we do key stage three assessment this year and it's currently in trial so what we do at the minute is that for each unit which is often a termly unit we've got a couple of half termly ones but they might not last in the kind of longer term journey. But for every termly unit, we've got what we term, just for simplicity, a first assessment, which in essence is formative assessment. And we tend not to use that language with the kids just because, well, it's a pedagogical term. They don't like they don't need to know that. What they need to know is, is the first assessment that they do based on that unit of work. And what we do for that is we split it into two sections. So our section A, as it were, which is arbitrary, you can call it section one if you want. We do kind of a multiple choice or short answer response where we assess directly what we've taught them in the lessons in terms of the kind of key knowledge that we want them to acquire. I was very much inspired kind of by um, David Dido's blogs and book Making Making Meaning in English, Mm. where he talks about curriculum related expectations. And that's what we've tried to model it on. So It sort of struck me when we looked at redoing KC3 assessments that what normally happens in most departments I've worked in over the last 12 years, and I hear about most often, is you teach a text, let's say you teach Macbeth for argument's sake to year seven, and then you do an essay at the end of that unit where it's write an essay about how ambition is presented in Macbeth. And then probably 80%, I'd say, of what you probably taught over that term you're not assessing their understanding of. Mm. And that boggles my mind that we've done that. And I get that it's kind of mirrored in the GCSE to a certain extent, but I sort of feel like we've got control of our curriculum and our assessment in Key Stage 3. I don't know why we wouldn't do more with it. And David Dadai talks about this idea of how often do we assess what we directly teach? So like assess mm. what's actually taught. So what we do, for example, for our first assessment Macbeth, if we've introduced kind of certain key terms like let's say um, dissembling, for example, that I mentioned earlier, then we'll do a multiple choice question, maybe with kind of four options to choose from of what the true definition of that is. And we try to construct them really carefully so that it's not kind of obvious because the problem with MCQs can be that you look at it and it's like, well, obviously it's C because it couldn't be A, B or D. Mm. And we try to construct it so it seems on the surface artificially like, it looks like it could be any of them, but a slight distinction in terms of the answer. So they have to think really hard about the answer and be able to justify it. And we kind of do those MCQ questions and then short answer responses where it might be name a specific example where Lady Macbeth could be portrayed as a dissembler, for example. And that, in essence, is assessing their ability to quote from the text and use textual evidence. But we make it really specific so that we can kind of go back and go, oh, in lesson three in the scheme, we did Lady Macbeth as assembler and we looked at this line. Are they quoting that line in their assessment? And if they're not, then we need to go back and think, well, we obviously didn't teach that very well. So we're kind of taking the approach of, although assessment is important for the students in terms of their progress, it's actually more important for the teacher because it's about Mm. what we've taught or what we can teach better next time and kind of capturing that kind of data that's what we kind of use our section A for, kind of to kind of just check for understanding. We don't record that in any spreadsheet. It's not kind of kept centrally. That's purely for individual teachers to modify their teaching and to mm. kind of set up kind of feedback or feed forward activities for the students. So it is kind of formative in every sense. And although there's kind of like, let's say, 10 questions to look at in section A, we don't care about the score out of 10. We take an arbitrary approach as a team whereby if they're not getting at least eight out of 10, 
we don't feel that they've secured the knowledge that they need. And then we could set up feedback activities to ensure that they kind of catch up with that. But it's not really for the kids to kind of come out and say, I got eight out of 10 or I got nine out of 10. It's much more, ah, I couldn't remember the specific example of the assembling. I'm going to have to look back at lesson three and make sure I learn that. So it's kind of really kind of closely tied in. And then our section B or section two, whatever you want to call it, is kind of more the analytical writing. But what we've taken a conscious decision to do is not to set essays too early. We took the decision, and it's a bold one, but I stand by it, not to set an essay once in year seven, for example, because I don't see the point. Because what I want to see a year seven be able to master is, you know, being able to introduce an idea and embed a quotation. So, mm. you know, analyze authorial methods, maybe perhaps make contextual links were apt. But if I end up kind of setting 30 essays on how does Shakespeare present ambition in Macbeth, there's no way I can precisely pin down that they've mastered those skills. And I don't want to. And we're trying to move away from this idea that you set that essay and then kind of mark with an assessment objective focus where kind of generic skills are taught anyway. So what we do is we set a single paragraph and we make it really specific. So we might give them an extract from, let's say, Act 1, Scene 1, where you've kind of got the witches portrayed. And we kind of begin our unit talking about the role of the supernatural. And it might be short extract from the witches scene. And the question might be a kind of essay-style question in terms of how Shakespeare presenting the supernatural. But we expect them to write one paragraph where they write that paragraph based on the way we've taught how to write paragraphs. So, for example, we will have taught in that unit that when writing about character, you always begin your point with a relative clause. So the which is comma, who, and then a bit of descriptive detail. And then you begin to embed a quotation a step two, and then we bring in analysis. So it's quite kind of systematic. And what we mark against is that success criteria. So we mark against kind of we've taught that you talk about characters by using relative clause, and we check that they've done that. So when we give feedback, it's not kind of like, oh, you know, make more interesting interpretations or, oh, you need to use better evidence from the text or analyze language more. It's really specific. It's right. You didn't use a relative clause for the witches. Go back and change that. So we try to do that. And that's, I suppose, what I mean by that knowledge rich curriculum, whereby we teach the tenets of writing in a very kind of sentence level way. And we build up slowly over the three years. And it's not really until the end of year nine in terms of our curriculum related expectations where we feel that they've mastered all the skills needed to write a decent essay on mm. where we look at animal farm at the end of year nine. And that's kind of what we're aiming towards. But the idea is they've mastered those things kind of bit by bit and then they can write it. Because I think year sevens, most of the time, look, they can write an essay on Macbeth and how ambitions presented. But how often are we presented with essays where the feedback we give just isn't that helpful and isn't precise and isn't as kind of pinned down to where it could be. And as you say, in terms of like workload and marking, it's not sustainable. You know, mm. it's not sustainable for us. And we very much take the approach that we'd rather kind of mark shorter pieces of writing, but give really effective feedback, do it less often, but better. And I think that's what's going to make the difference in terms of our staff wanting to mark because they don't begrudge it as much mm. whereas getting to the end of the unit on Macbeth and then 30 essays on ambition where you look at it and go oh, okay right they're not really embedding quotes any of them then you have to go back and reteach it or you have to write 30 times don't you oh you should embed a quotation but we don't do that we we also do kind of things like whole class feedback and book sampling and live marking to kind of mitigate that but we might talk about that a little bit later as well the kind of specific marking policies that we do but that's our approach it's it is quite systematic and measured and very much kind of with workload and well-being in mind as well. But I think also it's the better way to mark. So it's not just about mm. saving you marking 30 essays. I think teachers taking 30 essays to mark at a weekend, I think there's a martyrdom to that. And I think it's per policies <laughs> from a school. I don't think like you, I don't want teachers wanting extra pay or rewards for doing that. My view's always been well, you're just going to make yourself more knackered for Monday and probably teach quite badly. So we try to, at everything, try to prevent that where possible. 
Yeah, I, I listened. It's fascinating hearing you say, oh, I've never, um, I've had that experience not too long ago, the idea of like pointing out how many students haven't embedded something properly, like, and it's applied to the whole class. That certainly resonates. And uh, I listened to Adam Boxer talking to, I can't remember who it was now. It might have been Craig Barton um, in the last few weeks. And he he talked about the idea of marking as being like something like you just said then, like it can be, it verges on martyrdom. It can be gratuitous. It can be, he had some brilliant words that he described as, you know, it kind of, it makes you feel like you're working hard, but you're certainly not working towards any meaningful goal, really, uh, if, you, if you're being brutally honest with yourself. So yeah, really, really interesting to hear that. And um, Donald, thank you. Um, you personally, I mean, this this might be kind of more to do with leadership. It might be classroom instruction. It might be curriculum design. I don't know. But what's one thing that you've been thinking about recently that you'd like to improve at in terms of the job? So I think for me, I'm 12 years in. I don't think that I've mastered what good, effective homework looks like in English. I just don't think I've, I've got it. And I've tried so many different things and I, and I feel like I jump from one idea to the next and I don't feel like anything's ever taken hold for me. Mm-hmm. So when I kind of started early career, homework was very much kind of seen in my department, my first department that I worked in as, you know, something almost just to tick the box. If I'm being honest, we had a whole school policy whereby we had a homework timetable. So every Tuesday, English had to set homework for like, year seven, say, et cetera, across the year groups. So I just, I'm going to be really honest. I'm sorry to my old school, but I just arbitrarily set homework because it was my day to set homework. I didn't really think about it. And often, and I I hate myself for this. I look back on this and think, what were you thinking? As an NQT, it would be things like we were doing up mice and men back then, texts that, you know, I don't enjoy teaching anymore by any means, where it'd be like, Right, we've read chapter one about the setting of, you know, Salinas and the Gabalon Mountains. And I think I said a homework task where it was create a poster of what the Gabalon Mountains look like. Yeah. I think I might have academized <laughs> it by, I don't know, like saying maybe label it with quotes from yeah. chapter one to make it. But honestly, what I got in was 30, like really carefully, artistically drawn, beautiful pieces of mountains. I'm just thinking to myself, I'm not. I'm not a history teacher. I'm not a geography teacher. I'm not an art teacher. Like, what am I doing? Like, what have I learned mm-hmm. in terms of English in that? And it was just the biggest waste of time. But when I asked the students about how long they spent on it, some of them spent two hours on it. Yeah. So it was one of those things where they invested heavily in this. And I was thinking, you know, this is just, just a bit crap, you know? And I just did it for the sake of it. And then I kind of, kind of caught myself on a little bit and thought, well, I can't do that anymore. That's ridiculous. You know, once I wasn't NQT anymore, like, well, I need to make sure it works really well. But then I think I jumped too far the other end. I remember my second year then, you know, of my men, same unit with a different year group being taught. And I, I went way too far. I, I brought in some kind of academic critical readings of mice and men. I think, I think at one point, and this was, this was year nine at this point where we did this, I think I brought in a post-colonial reading of a mice and men, mm. the character crooks. I definitely didn't kind of moderate and curate the kind of academic language that was in there. And I think I just kind of give them that to read with a series of follow-up questions for check for understanding. And then to my shock horror was surprised that, oh, they didn't conceptualize this critical article about <laughs> post-colonialism. I just look back at that and go, that was better than the poster, but I just, I just didn't get it right. And and then, you know, I've I've gone, you know, it's it's interesting that you mentioned Adam Boxer. And Adam, although as a science teacher, is probably one of the most inspiring educators for me. Yeah. In in all of education. I think, you know, I always say to people, I mean, to the point where with Adam, I I I bought his book, um, teaching secondary education science or science mm. education. Um and I think it's called, I can't remember off the top of my head, Cracking Key Concepts in Science. I ended up buying those books because he wrote them. And they're all about science. And they have no bearing on what I do day <laughs> to day. But I look at what he does, particularly with kind of, you know, his work with carousel and like retrieval practice and quizzing. 
And I, I, I sort of feel like that's where I want to be with homework in English. Mm. I sort of feel like if I'm going to do it, it needs to be retrieval focused or recall focused. And I think the only time where I've, the only, the only homework I've been really, truly proud of, I think, in 12 years, and I, I'm not saying that I've done it badly in every way. Those examples I gave you earlier were extreme examples of per homework design. But the only one I was really proud of was when we used to teach GNR at GCSE for our 19th century novel. We decided we're going to do GNR in year 11. And we worked out that GNR has 39 chapters. So we thought, you know what we're going to do for year 10? We're going to set one chapter a week mm. that aligns with the skill calendar. We use the software Show My Homework and we put a 10-question recall retrieval quiz based on each chapter after they read it each week to check that they did it. And that was my homework for our U-group sort of for the year. And I remember telling people this at the time. And they said, you're an absolute fool. They're, they're going to get to year 11, not a red Jane Eyre, and then they're going to do a GCSE exam on that text. But honestly, the students rose to that challenge. It was minimal in terms of staff workload. It was all self-marked with Show My Homework. Mm. We tracked the scores. So again, it's that principle that I've adopted for our current KC3 model. If they got below 8 out of 10, because they were fairly kind of standard recall retrieval questions, we weren't like asking them to analyze because they were just reading for comprehension at that point. If they got below 8 out of 10, okay, two weeks in a row, then we contacted parents and then we put in intervention or a detention to make sure that they were back on track with their learning. So we were able to kind of track that they were doing it. But once it was set up, it was done and it was effective. And I had mm. data that I could do something with. I had students where it's like, right, you've struggled with this question in GNR. So when we came to read that bit, I could say, right, some of you struggled with this section of the text. So I'm just going to re-explain what happens here. And it actually gave me something to feed into my teaching. And I feel like if I could do that for all my units, for all my year groups, I'd be really happy, but it's just the time investments of that. So how we did that, and it was just for one year group, we split the department, department of six at that point, where they were given a section of the novel each to prepare the quizzes for. We get it all uploaded. It was ready to go. But I just think at the minute with time pressures and obviously with COVID, the extra measures that come into place and just the extra faff that teaching now has, it's just hard to dedicate the time to do it. I feel like if I was given a week off timetable and I could just get it prepared. I would get it sorted for years to come. But yeah, homework, never, never mastered it. I feel like I've got close with that one, but I just want to make that more systematic. And if anyone's mm. out there who can give me advice and show me how you've done it, you know, I will lap it up. And it's interesting because I asked on Twitter actually a few months ago, kind of, can anyone give me an example of how they do homeworks? And of all my tweets, it probably got the least response. <laughs> and I don't think it's because of the time I like tweeted it or anything like that. Yeah, I think it's because not, yeah. loads of people at home are just like, oh, I don't know. I've not mastered either. I just think I look at like how carousels used for the teaching of science. I look at Hegarty maths and how they use that for maths homework. I just think that's amazing and brilliant. Mm. And everyone always says, oh, well, English is different. I'm like, it's not though. It doesn't need to be. And I need a system like that that would really help. So Maybe it does exist. Maybe I haven't come across it. But look, if you tweet me, let me know. If you've got I, I agree. I think I agree with you on that one, Donald. I think it has to be something which, like if, it, if it's reading-based, like you said, I, I think it's 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 definitely kind of a, a viable kind of option. And not obviously Jane Eyre is like a big old um, book in terms of, like you said, the 39 chapters. It's not to say that you couldn't do it with another book which is like half the size like things fall apart or something like that because right. sometimes you do you do ask them to read the book and they read it in earnest over like two three weeks six weeks whatever and in terms of cognitive load just getting them to remember certain elements of certain chapters which I don't blame them for forgetting like can you remember who you know is the grandfather of you know so-and-so character in this particular book it can be quite hard particularly if the books aren't you know anglo-centric names mm. um so yeah I've, I've never thought about doing that with a book before in terms of homework but maybe i'll um 
yeah, I'll experiment. I think um, with that maybe because we have, we have the same thing like once a cycle, once every seven days, two days assigned to English. And I've actually heard teachers say things like, "Oh, I don't want to give them any homework because I feel like they've got enough already." And mm-hmm. I believe I believe they I believe them when they say that. But I do also think it's maybe evidence of the fact that we don't know, like you say, what good homework looks like, and we don't want to waste the time with meaningless tasks um for the sake of doing them so yeah that's that's a really good one um in terms of uh or oh, coming back to reading um reading and writing I've, I've looked at um i've read that the, the writing revolution in the past and reading reconsidered and these different things in terms of uh initiatives that, that departments can have to ensure students are getting rigorous practice in these areas. What kind of discussions have you had uh, recently or in the past about how to best approach uh, writing skills and reading skills? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the writing revolution because we've very much been inspired by that as well. And also, um, I don't know if you've read Crafting Brilliant Sentences by Lindsay Skinner. Yeah, well. yeah, great, it's really, really good. Kind of complimentary text with that. I suppose for us, I mean, I think in terms of reading initiatives as a skill, we've just developed our kind of read aloud program during form time. It's not something that I'm particularly part of, but I think that's a good step in the right direction just to encourage reading for pleasure. I think in a department, what we focus on is writing and making that a bit more systematic. So we very much, and we kind of put this in our kind of truly great teaching document, sort of what we think is truly great English teaching, that we teach and explicitly model writing at a sentence level. Um, as a starting point. So when we're preparing, let's say, for example, I don't know, for GCSE language and the creative writing sections, whether fiction or nonfiction, we look at kind of how sentences operate on a very kind of minute level. So we have in Key Stage 3 kind of a, a grammar for writing program whereby once a week, our year sevens and eights, they do a grammar lesson, but it's grammar for writing. So it's not just mm-hmm. kind of grammar to kind of, I suppose, no fancy terms or kind of recall what I suppose in key stage two they do in terms of like identify a subordinate clause. It's it's much more about how we use that to make our writing more interestingly. So we kind of build that as a foundation. So they've got that prerequisite knowledge of kind of grammatical structures. And then when we get to key stage four and that preparation for GCSE writing, we look at the kind of flair and originality people can bring. And we kind of, we've adopted a program that we call interesting sentences. So for kind of writing to describe or narrative writing, for example, we look at eight very specific sentence structures that we want students to include within our writing. It's not the only ones they use. They can definitely use their own. We don't want to stifle creativity entirely, but we look at very specific sentences that we feel enables them to write more creatively and also with a bit of sophistication, which is half the battle, isn't it, with writing mm. creatively? Because I think, I mean, I've overheard teachers say things like, oh, well, you can't teach it. They either can do it or they can't do it, <laughs> which is, I mean, it pisses me off beyond all recall because <laughs> I, you have to be taught hard to write. And I think you need to make that really explicitly clear. And I think, you know, you know, Jennifer Webb's book, um, I don't know if you know, Teach Like a Writer, that she yeah. wrote, which is just brilliant. Um mm just really kind of shaped my thinking on that because it's very much well actually if we're we're teaching them to write and write for an exam we should consider what writers actually do and get them in the headspace of writers so we introduced these eight different sentence structures just to get them thinking about kind of deliberate impact of writing and i suppose that's the purpose i mean the eight we've chosen are arguably arbitrary they don't have to be the eight but just by doing this program it gets them thinking that oh by using that it creates certain impact So, for example, we look at, you know, when we begin narrative or descriptive writing, we always begin in media res, so straight in the Mm. middle of action. We kind of encourage that just because students love to waffle and they're not very good, we find in our setting at least, kind of establishing setting through description. And it ends up just being that kind of classic, you know, it was a dark and stormy night nonsense and we, we don't want it. So we kind of do in media res begin and then we offer ways in which you can do that. So one of our sentence structures is the double present participle. So we look at the idea of how you can use participles, so ing verbs, in essence, and front 
a sentence with two of them to create two clauses before you introduce your main clause. And we kind of teach how you use that. We show examples of writers using it and how it creates impact. And we give them that knowledge. So when it comes to them writing, even if they get stuck, our lower end kids, you know, who have the blank page fear, yeah. they know, oh, well, actually, I can always use a double present participle. And it's really effective. And it shows mm. the examiner straight away that you consciously crafted sentences. And that's our kind of rationale. We don't mind what sentences they create as long as they're conscious in doing that. And we kind of, you know, we, we do short pieces of writing and slow writing with that program. And double present participle is just one of the eight that we do. I won't tell you all of them because you'll be bored, I think. But it's just... No, I was quite like to know. Can you, are you, can you list yeah, them off now? Go on. I can list them off. So... <laughs> I'm going to forget one now, of course, now that I've said that arrogantly, but I can list them all. So it's double present participle. Um, yeah. We do subordinate starter with two main clauses. So kind of you begin kind of with a subordinate clause. So like within a conjunction often like as or whilst, and then you introduce two mm. main clauses that follow. We do, which is not very imaginative, I'm afraid. It's called the DDDD. And the D stands for descriptive detail. And it's descriptive detail, semicolon, descriptive detail. So it's the DDDD with a semicolon in the middle. It's not a very good name, I accept. I'm not very <laughs> catching. But the, the kids love it. That's the one they always remember the most. Um, we do, what's the other ones we do? I'm trying to think of the order. We don't do them in a specified order as such. Uh, we do the three word sentence. So we kind of, we look at short sentences for impact, but we also teach it in terms of subject verb agreements. Because the problem is when you say do a short sentence for impact, they tend to do minor sentences and fragments, but that doesn't show understanding of how sentences work. So we kind of yeah. do it to a subject verb, three word sentence. We do a compound sentence, which is a fairly straightforward one, but it's just kind of important that they do that. Uh, what are the other two? Oh, we do the noun of noun. So we kind of look at kind of the use of kind of metaphor by kind of doing noun of noun. So it's like, for example, we use noun in terms of like a concrete noun to begin. Then they add of, and then they have to follow it up with an abstract noun. So it might be, for example, you know, eyes of disappointment, for example. So it kind of, again, it's just kind of getting them to think about how nouns can be used in a different context. And what's our last one? It's eluding me, our last one. It'll come back to me in a minute, but there's one other one that we. And do. where's it? Where did you kind of um, amass all these from, Donald? Was it purely from, like you said, the the writing revolution and uh, the Lindsay Skinner stuff, or? Yeah, it was a mixture of the two, really. So some come from the writing revolution, some come from Crafting Brilliant Sentences by Skinner, and then some were just kind of our tweaks on yeah. that as well. So kind of just using the kind of departmental knowledge for it, and I think I'd say if you. I'll probably blog about it at some point, kind of how we do that. Up and yeah, you should. Examples. Yeah. I would say, though, if our approach is very much a Huntington skill approach. It's how we do it. Obviously, drawing in, you know, kind of evidence-informed work from other, other people. But I, I don't think it's about kind of which ones you use. So you don't have to use kind of, you know, the sub and two main clauses. You don't have to use that one. There's other ones you can do. But I think having kind of a program that's systematic and set up the students familiar with and they can engage with, and we get them to stick with kind of a table with each of the sentences and examples at the back of their book constantly referred to. It just gives them kind of, as I said, kind of a concrete piece of knowledge about grammatical structures that they can employ mm. in writing. And over time, of course, they can kind of tweak them. So, for example, we've had students who, you know, kind of look at, let's say, the compound sentence and they go... Oh, that's the last, I just remember the last one. The last one's extended simile. So the extended simile is kind of going beyond just your kind of standard simile. We kind of spend a bit of time talking about how similes work by looking at tenor and vehicle and kind of Mm. how the kind of simile is constructed. But what we do is we talk about a lot. We use this language as well as where the kind of knowledge rich comes in. We talk about you need to have an interesting vehicle in your simile that allows you to extend an idea. So we don't allow things like, you know, he ran as fast as a cheetah. We don't want it. You know, we talk about the vehicle being used, but then adding a clause thereafter. So it's always kind of tenor and vehicle, your standard comparison and assembly, 
comma, and then they have to extend that idea further. So mm-hmm. it might be, for example, you know, even if you're going to use as fast as a cheetah, you know, it might be as fast as a cheetah, comma, you know, racing across the Serengeti. Uh, yeah. Because what we what we find with students often is that they end up kind of reverting back to kind of primary school level work. And they kind of, when they're introduced to similes, for example, in secondary school, it's very much, oh, we've done that. And it's like, you know, as greedy as a pig. And it's always animal-based, I noticed as well, which is interesting. <laughs> so we kind of try to kind of to mitigate that and kind of look at that a bit further. And then when we do work like extended metaphor and poetry, they kind of see the connection, but extended ideas. So, yeah, I don't think it, it doesn't matter in your department, which you choose, but, but have a set that you draw from that every teacher mm. teaches as well. I think that's important. So when you go from one class to another, as your groups change and stuff, yeah. you've got that consistency to build on, but it's just, we, we call it interesting sentences because what we frame it as to the students is, we want you to be interesting writers. We want you to sound like a writer. This isn't just to pass an exam. It's consciously crafting sentences for deliberate impact. And that's the kind of language we kind of permeate throughout our lessons as well. Mm, yeah, this is fascinating again. Really, really interesting. You definitely should blog about that. That'd be really, yeah, um, that'd be really, really useful, I think. Um, with regard to uh, moving away from like reading and writing, I don't know if this is a skill that's like left behind somewhat in your school or previous schools that you've worked at, but do you have any provision in the curriculum for speaking um, publicly, such as like presentations or debate or this kind of thing? If so, how, how often is it implemented? Yeah. I mean, if I'm being honest, I think it's probably something we don't do enough of at the Mm. minute and we need to do more of, because I think oracy is, a really fundamental tenant of literacy. And I think it's often kind of the, you know, forgotten cousin in the back a little bit as well. I mean, I suppose our kind of golden opportunity of how we do that's in year nine. So we teach animal farm in term two, so we can look at kind of rhetoric and manipulation through Squealer as a character, how that ties into the propaganda of Stalinist Russia. And then we do a unit that follows that deliberately called the art of rhetoric. And we look at speeches from kind of, history so we look at Martin Luther King, Barack Obama um, and other figures as well and then we get them to perform their own kind of rhetorical speech kind of Mm. using the kind of art of rhetoric that we've kind of taught to them and again we're kind of really explicit to things that we we look out for so we kind of draw from kind of you know Aristotle a little bit we look at kind of you know logos and ethos and pathos and how that's used we look at things like erotema and hypophora and kind of give them that kind of base. And then they perform that in front of their class. And it's quite powerful. The students, if I'm being blunt, hate it with an absolute passion. I think they really struggle speaking in front of their peers. I think there's this sense of embarrassment about it, which kind of irritates me no end when you kind of get students saying, oh, can I do this after school or can I do it at lunchtime? Or I knock at refusal just blunt refusal mm. it on you know I, I don't allow for that and I, and I always say like no it's a really important skill but I think the problem we've got is I sort of feel like that comes with very little foundations to kind of build up to the confidence required for public speaking yeah. and I you know I've talked a lot about how you know our kind of writing in particular in our department so systematic and carefully thought through from year seven to nine and I don't think we do the same in terms of the oracy and yet we sort of expect that. We do a little bit of like, here's some really brilliant speakers. And then we sort of say, oh, be like them, which is really hard because, you know, yeah. Barack Obama is great at speech making, but he's made a career out of it, obviously. Mm. And kids in our year nine class in Huntington, you know, they don't have that kind of cultural capital sometimes, but just proficiency in speaking. So I think it's something I definitely want to revisit. I mean, when I worked in South London, I did a lot more of it, if I'm being honest. I mean, we did debate. We had a debate club in school and we used um, the organization Debate Mate as well to kind of train our students. And we went to national competitions and it was brilliant. And, you know, as part of our English units, we looked at kind of how debates work in terms of structure, you know, what proposition means, what opposition means, how you do a rebuttal. We taught it so explicitly. And we had students, you know, on waiting lists for our debate club. You know, we we couldn't get enough. Stu- we we had too many students rather to um, sign up for that club to the point where 
At one point, I think we had three debate clubs. I think we had a team A, team B, and team C, <laughs> and then a waiting list beyond that. It was it was it was brilliant. And that might have been contextually driven. I mean, we were in South London. Our cohort was very vociferous by nature. I mean, they they loved, loved speaking their mind and speaking out in their opinion. So that was great. And we did poetry live as well. Uh, uh, poetry by heart, sorry, run by AQA on that, where they had to memorize by heart a poem and then perform that poem. And we had a performance poetry club. And that was amazing as well. It's something that, I don't know if it's something that as I've progressed more towards working as curriculum leader or subject leader, that I've lost a little bit of sight of in the kind of midst of changes recently. And because you don't, beyond the kind of spoken language endorsement at GCSE for us, there's not speaking and listening really that valued. I mean, you don't really hear of Ofsted going in with their deep dives, do you? Like a, yeah. their provision for speaking and listening wasn't good enough. Like it, yeah. it just seems to be sort of off off the radar and I think when that happens it just sort of gets dropped off the agenda when we're so busy at the minute but it's something that yeah I've thought about more and more actually over the last few weeks you know I I've visited some schools where I see students speak so well publicly and confidently and then I ask how and they just say the same thing well we teach it through our curriculum and I think yeah that's the answer and it's mm. so obvious it's so blindingly obvious but I think it's just something that when I look back over our sequencing i'm really happy what we've done with our concept lab but maybe we just look for more opportunities for that because they need yeah. they need to do it you know and it's people always say well what about you know the the shy kids the reluctant kids and i'm very much of the ethos i don't believe in opting out if you're in school you're here to learn you do you just do what the teacher tells you and i think we need to for those kids particularly give them the opportunity to do that because it might yeah. be the thing that gets them over it you know, because of course they're going to be shy and not want to speak in front of their peers if they never get to do it because they're ill practice in it. So, yeah, definitely want to do more on it. And I think a lot of schools are probably in the same boat, really, with that. I've done like, I've, I've cut deals with kids in the past who are of that mindset. And I've said, well, listen, you've got a video yourself and I will play it to everyone um, in the room type of thing. So I can understand if you get stage fright, but this is another, you know what I mean? So, um, um, yeah, I'm completely with you on that. And, and you know, you talk about like a knowledge rich curriculum and you talk about what, what does it mean? What, what are like the kind of fundamentals of English? And you've talked already about narrative writing. Surely rhetoric is yeah. up there in the pantheon of kind of what we need kids to walk away from in school. And if, you know, written rhetoric's brilliant, but yeah, like how often do you kick yourself for not being able to articulate yourself in the moment when you're debating with someone over, you know, Brexit or Boris or whoever. Um, so, um, yeah, but yeah, the, 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 um, last, last question I'd, uh, be keen to know is aside from Twitter, you're obviously kind of, um, a notable kind of English presence on Twitter. And, um, I'm sure that would be the first kind of resource you would point to for anyone who wants to improve. Are, are there any other resources, which either we've mentioned already, that you'd like to reiterate or any new resources which you think uh, you've come across in English uh, for English teaching and have uh, have made like quite a momentous impact on on your work yeah. that other people should come across? So, I mean, yeah, as you say, Twitter is always going to be the first port of call for me. It's probably where I've learned most about subject-specific pedagogy, to be honest. But I think Twitter is a vehicle of the ideas that are already out there. I mean... I know some people are quite mocking and scathing of, you know, teachers writing books and sort of see that as some kind of like self-interested vanity project, which I just don't buy. I think when, you know, we've got brilliant English teachers across the country writing books about their craft of teaching, that's what we should be reading. And I mean, the ones that probably have had the most impact to me, obviously I've mentioned The Writing Revolution and Crafting Brilliant Sentences by Lindsay Skinner, and they're great in terms of like, you know, practical application in the classroom. But the ones that have kind of influenced me most in terms of how I teach or perceive English, I mean, Jenny Webb, How to Teach English Literature, Overcoming uh, Cultural Poverty. That book is incredible. I think anyone who teaches literature needs to read that. Um, I mentioned earlier as well that she wrote Teach Like a Writer. So two books mm -hmm. from Jenny. I think they're just kind of 
you know, bread and butter. I think if you've got kind of, you know, a departmental kind of CPD library or you have a whole school CPD library, you know, ask whoever's in charge of that to get them in to that library. I think that's really important. Chris Curtis wrote a really good book, um, How to Teach English as well, which I think is brilliant. I think, you know, any book that's kind of phrased as how to teach English <laughs> is going to be a really good kind of resource to draw from. And it's really accessible and just you can kind of see the application and and that. And we kind of mentioned David Didi earlier as well. I know you've kind of done a previous podcast with him, but genuinely making meaning in English, I yeah. think is probably the it's probably the book over the last decade that I've read that has made me reevaluate what I do most. And the other books have probably supplemented kind of what I've done or kind of maybe even confirmed my thinking. But that in terms of kind of curriculum-related expectations, assessing what's actually taught, moving away from a skills-based agenda, all of that, you know, his kind of building blocks of what English is made up of as a discipline and threshold concepts. It's just, it's just amazing. And I yeah. think, you know, it's really kind of, it's really inspired what we now do in terms of key stage three assessment and just day-to-day what I teach. You know, I, you know, I, I was trained in 2009, you know, and I'm not going to lie, I, I was trained to be, you know, a proper kind of like progressive teacher, if you want to use that label. I'm not that keen on the labels, to be honest, but properly kind of prog, you know, I was all about, you know, initially in my early career, about engagement and fun. And it was sort of like activities first, learning afterwards. Mm. I look back at some of the stuff I did, you know, like context treasure hunts, like we're going to learn about Shakespeare's life. I put eight posters up around the room <laughs> and I want you to go and find out. Why? Why can, I just, tell been there. Why can yeah. I just explicitly instruct them in that and then check for understanding all the stuff I do now. And I think for me, kind of when, I read David Dido's book. It just sort of really struck a chord to me. Kind of the teacher I've become, kind of beyond maybe my NQT year, maybe NQT plus one, if I'm being honest, is sort of the teacher that I want, you know, my department to be. But I also think it's the teacher that every English teacher needs to be across the country. And I think that's going to sound like really, like I'm plugging that book a lot. And I suppose I am. I think every English teacher needs to read it. And even if there's yeah. elements of it you disagree with, actually how that might crystallize your thinking could be just as important because you know you may look at the fact that he talks about one of the central tenets of teaching English is metaphor you know and you might say well actually I don't think metaphor is my top six yeah well well I mean I think he's looking in a far more complex way than a checklist as I'm sure he'd say himself but I think even if that's the case of you look at and go well I wouldn't do that or you know I don't think year seven should be be taught mythos by Stephen Fry. It's fine to disagree, but I think it opens up a debate that needs to be had about what mm. English is. And I think that's kind of really important. And, you know, those books are great. And I suppose aside from that, I mean, I just think, so I am the kind of teacher who spends evenings and Saturday mornings doing CPD. And we mm. live in a time now where it's so readily available for me, like I've learned most from other teachers in the classroom talking about what they do. And it's really interesting that it's not always possible, but go and visit schools. So I used to be really incredibly lucky when I was in a teaching and learning role where I used to do about 10 or 15 school visits a year. And I just got to go and just smooth my way into the best schools I could find. So look, I just want to see what you can do, you know. Mm-hmm. Remember going to visit Michaela in the early days before it was established and that well known when they had their first cohort of year seven. And just being like, yeah, warm, strict, kind of high expectations. Yeah, I'm all about it. I love it. It's great. And I just remember mm-hmm. thinking, God, there's a school doing that. But so many people didn't know about it. Everyone knows about it now, I'm sure, but they didn't back then. So if you can wrangle a school visit, you sometimes need to come outside of your department and your classroom and see what other people are doing because it might just yeah. inspire an idea, you know, and I, I, most of my, in fact, all of my ideas have been stolen from someone else. I'm not that original. I don't think anyone is in teaching. I think it's kind of disseminating and being kind of critical readers of research and, you know, books that people publish or resources people put together and then making it your own, but just go on Twitter, find out what's out there. And if you're not using Twitter, then go and see schools in action, find out who the best school is in your local area email the head teacher or the head of department and say, I want to come and see you. Because mm-hmm. it always amazes me. 
I did 15 visits one school year. Not one school said no to me. Not one. Mm. They're really accommodating. And people make this assumption that, you know, oh, they won't have time to come and see me. Most schools, particularly the kind of best schools, they want to show off what they're doing. Yeah. And they're more yeah. than happy to do it. And it's just, yeah, do it if you can. That's, I suppose that's probably my top tip. Kind of, if you're not going to be a ferocious reader of kind of research and what's out there, you're not on Twitter, then go and see people do it in action. And actually that can be beneficial because yeah. sometimes people say things, they don't always do them in the classroom, but you can get to see it for the <laughs> visit as well. So that's yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I'd, I'd, as a final point, I would echo you completely 100% on the Making Meaning in English book by David Dardow. It's just, and particularly that chapter on metaphor. I remember I read that and I was like, no, this is, no, 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 no. And by the time I got to the end of it, like it, it was definitely... Yeah, it completely changed the way like I saw that particular aspect of English and also the depth with which, you know, it it, it kind of rests within the subject itself. And and that's just one of six chapters, you know, um that he talks about. So yeah. But yeah, the only the only thing remains for me to say, Donald, is thank you very much for giving up your time today to have a chat. So many, yeah, insightful, interesting, brilliant comments there, which uh uh, I'll certainly be kind of when I listen back to it later on to, to edit and stuff I'll be looking into a few of those myself to implement them next year so thank you very much for um, yeah having a chat thank you thanks for having me